Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. All right, well, if you have a Bible, turn with me to that passage we just read, Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26, where we'll be this morning. Um, full disclosure, uh, I am a relative newcomer to the world of TikTok. Uh, I know some of you are pros at it. Uh, I'm what the industry would call a late adopter. Um, I created an account, I think a little over a year ago. Uh, I've posted absolutely nothing so far, so I'm doing good. Uh, I think I told myself when I created an account that I was doing it for like vocational reasons. I was thinking, you know, I'm a pastor at a church that has a lot of 20 and 30 somethings in it. Uh, A lot of them are on TikTok, so I'll get a TikTok account so that I know how to better lead and shepherd them. That's what I told myself. You know how you lie to yourself about your motivations sometimes? But I do think that was at least part of the reason. Uh, The other part though was, it was just genuine curiosity, right? I wanted to know what all the fuss was about. So long story short, I created an account. And I've gotta say, uh, it's quite interesting. Some of it, at least. I think TikTok's gonna make it, like as a product. I think it's sticking around. Not all of it is interesting. Some of it is just utterly useless, to be honest. But if you get your feed dialed in just right, just like with any other social media account, you can come across some pretty interesting stuff. And I was really enjoying my feed for a while on TikTok until one day TikTok discovered that I was a Christian. And then my feed got a little bit weird uh, from that point on. Some of it was okay, just like Bible verses, worship music video clips, things like that. But some of it was also pretty cringe, which is also a word that I learned from TikTok. Um, One of the things that it decided I would like on my feed is what I have now come to call snarky apologist videos. So the videos go something like this. You may have seen some of these. There's a Christian apologist who has shown up at a college campus, either like in a lecture hall or just somewhere in public outside on campus. A crowd of students have gathered to hear him talk. And at some point during this gathering, someone who is opposed to the Christian faith will try to stump him with a question about faith or about the Bible or whatever it is. And then without fail, at least in the videos that are on my feed, Uh, the apologist will sort of retort back to that person asking the question and will eventually win the argument or debate. They'll use the other person's words against them. They'll point out their flawed logic in some way, shape, or form. They'd argue this person into submission and they would win, so to speak. And because it's on TikTok, the moment that the apologist would do this in a decisive sort of way, the like background of the video goes gray, the video pauses on that frame, some type of dramatic walk-off music plays in the video. In, in one of the videos, those cartoon sunglasses just drop down over the apologist's face <laughs> as if to crown him the victor of this particular debate. Uh, that's how these videos typically go. And there's probably, I mean, I see a dozen of them per day. Probably. 
And here's the thing, maybe if we saw the longer form of those videos, we would see genuine dialogue between these two people discussing their beliefs with each other. But the way that TikTok is set up, the videos are framed a little bit more like a face-off than they are a conversation. They're more like a, like a rap battle where, where the point is for one contestant to like embarrass and shame and dismiss the other one in front of everybody else. And at least in the TikTok videos that my feed shows me, the Christian apologist always wins the rap battle in every single scenario. Now, TikTok keeps showing me these videos because I keep watching them. I get that that's how the algorithm works. <laughs> But here's the problem with the algorithm. It can't distinguish between videos that I am watching because I like them and agree with them and videos that I am watching because I'm fiercely judging the content in them, right? <laughs> because I can't look away. And at least most of the time with these snarky apologist videos, it's the latter. I, I just can't believe that this is a thing that happens. So I keep watching these videos a little bit like you would watch a train wreck happen, right? Not because you're rooting for it, but because you, you don't know how to look away as it's happening. And therefore, TikTok keeps showing me the videos, such as life, right? But here's the thing. Apologists like that would not exist unless there was a felt need for them. And videos wouldn't exist of them on TikTok unless there were people posting and watching and liking and sharing those videos. There are Christians out there who think that that stuff is really, really effective, that think that method is really, really effective, or bare minimum who think that those videos are really satisfying to watch. And while I might not love the apologist methods in those videos, I do at least understand the draw towards it. I, I think there's something in us, or at least a lot of us, that is just drawn towards a fight. Maybe that's a physical fight, or, or maybe it's just sort of a verbal sparring like in those videos. We, we are drawn towards the idea of arguing someone into submission, and we love watching when someone else does that well. I mean, get the popcorn out, right? That's, that's how we feel, witnessing something like that. And I think specifically when it comes to our faith in Jesus, there is part of us that is drawn towards defending what we believe specifically when it feels like it's under attack by the outside world. And, and let's face it, with every day that our surrounding culture moves further from a biblical worldview, many of us feel like those attacks on our faith are more and more common, more and more frequent. But I do wonder if there's something that we're missing when we gravitate towards that sort of defensive posture. I wonder if we're missing something about who Jesus is and what our role is as a follower of Jesus. And on a deeper level, I wonder if we're actually missing something about the radical upside down nature of God's kingdom and how it actually works in very different ways than the kingdom of this world. That in essence is what our passage this morning is about. We are about to read the story of Jesus's arrest at the hands of an armed mob. Jesus and his kingdom, at least by all appearances, in this story is under attack. And because it's under attack, one of Jesus' disciples is going to respond like you would expect somebody to respond if they were under attack, by defending all that they hold dear. 
But Jesus' response to that disciple in the passage, I think, tells us a lot about what our role is and what our role isn't in the kingdom of God. So, with that said, pick it up with me, chapter 26, verse 45. Then he, that's Jesus in context, Jesus returned to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? So remember, at this point in the story, Jesus and the disciples are still in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus has been praying. He's asked his disciples to stay there and keep watch with him and pray for him as well. The disciples have now failed a few different times to do that by falling asleep while they're supposed to be praying. And now it appears it's too late. Second half of verse 45. Look, the hour has come, Jesus says, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go, here comes my betrayer. And while Jesus was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. So, just as a reminder, Judas, who was one of the twelve disciples, has decided to team up with the chief priests to capture and murder Jesus. Judas leverages his relational proximity to Jesus in order to help the chief priests locate Jesus in exchange for some money paid to Judas. So here, Judas directs a large crowd to Jesus, quote, armed with swords and clubs. Verse 48. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one that I kiss is the man, arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, rabbi, and kissed him. So keep in mind that as well known as Jesus and his ministry are in this area at this time, this all happened in a time before photographs, right? So there weren't like wanted pictures with Jesus's face on them all over town. While, while a lot of people had heard of Jesus, the vast majority of people still had no idea what Jesus looked like which is why Judas has to have this prearranged signal with the crowd to indicate who Jesus is to the ones making the arrest. So he approaches Jesus in the garden. He greets him with a kiss, which was a common greeting in that culture, much like us shaking hands today. And that indicates to the crowd which one to arrest. Verse 50, Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. And then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, one of the ones making the arrest, cutting off his ear. Now, we find out elsewhere in the Gospels that this companion, who is not named in Matthew, is actually Peter. But if you've been following the story for any length of time, you knew exactly who it was the moment that this happened, because Peter has a bit of a reputation at this point. So Peter draws his weapon and slices a guy's ear clean off. Now, most likely, slicing off the guy's ear was not his intent. I don't know that you could do that if you tried, right? Like, that's an unbelievable amount of precision. Peter was most likely aiming for the guy's head or neck in order to kill him. But I don't know if you've ever had a sword swung at your head. I sincerely hope you haven't. But I would imagine that you tend to move in order to dodge the sword, right? And when he does, Peter instead slices off his ear. Now, as aggressive as Peter's actions sound at this point in the story to many of us, I do want you to put yourself in his situation for just a moment. Jesus has just told all of his disciples 
that they are going to fail him in the near future. Peter responds to that by saying, I will never fail you, Jesus. Even if I have to die, I will not fail you. Then, immediately after saying that, Peter can't even stay awake as Jesus prays in the garden to keep watch. And then as soon as he awakes, likely feeling guilty about having fallen asleep, this whole arrest situation is unfolding right in front of him, right? So do you see what's happening with Peter? Peter's got something to prove in this moment. He's thinking, this this is my moment to show Jesus and everybody else that I've actually got what it takes. This is my opportunity to show Jesus that I'm not gonna fail him. In fact, I'll fight for him. So the moment Jesus is taken into custody, Peter slices off the guy's ear. Peter, it would seem, has still not learned his lesson about what his role is within God's kingdom. Or at least he has not called any of what he's learned so far to mind in this moment. Jesus has told Peter time and time again that the plan is for him to be captured, arrested, and be killed. That is the plan, and simultaneously, Peter has assumed time and time again that his mission is to stop the plan. So once again, here, Peter is going to get a dose of correction directly from Jesus. Bit of a theme in Matthew's gospel. Look at verse 52. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then, Peter, would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? Jesus says yet again, Peter, what is happening in this moment is not an interruption to the plan. It is the plan. As difficult as it is for you to fathom, this is the way that it was always supposed to go down. Which is why I've told you, Peter, over and over again, that this is how it would go down. Jesus has said this quite a few times at this point in the story, precisely because he does not want his disciples to be caught off guard by it, or better yet, stop it from happening. But once again, that has not fully clicked in Peter's mind, which is why he gets an even more focused rebuke this time from Jesus for what he does. Jesus says, one thing I don't need you to do, Peter, is defend me. He says, if what I needed was defending, don't you think I could ask my father and he would have sent 12 legions of angels? So a legion was a way of referring to a thousand soldiers. So Jesus is saying, don't you think if I needed defending, I could ask the father and he would have sent 12,000 angel soldiers to defend me? Don't you think I would have done that if that's what I needed to happen? But Jesus doesn't need defending. He doesn't need Peter to defend him. There have been things that Jesus has wanted desperately for Peter to do throughout the storyline of Matthew's gospel. Jesus has wanted Peter to pray for him, keep watch with him, listen to him, obey him, follow him. But nowhere in that list of things he wants Peter to do is for Peter to defend him. And here, Jesus reiterates that idea. He tells Peter... Put your sword back in its place, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. So Jesus is specifically taking aim 
at Peter's inclination towards physical violence as a means of defending Jesus and preserving God's kingdom. That's what he's calling out in this story. Over in John 18, after Jesus is arrested, Jesus actually makes his opposition to this posture, this demeanor from Peter, even clearer when he says this. We'll put it up on the screen. Jesus said to the authorities, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight, as in with weapons and violence, to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. I've gotta think Peter felt just a little singled out by that statement, right? Since that's pretty much an exact description of what Peter had just done a few hours earlier. But now, Jesus says, my kingdom is from another place. What Jesus seems to be implying here is that his kingdom works very differently than what worldly kingdoms do. Worldly kingdoms go forward on the heels of violence and power and force and coercion. That's how the kingdoms of this world conquer. That's how they advance. That's how they accomplish their purposes. But my kingdom, Jesus says, doesn't work like that which he emphasizes next in what he says to the crowd. Verse 55, in that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, the crowd that was there armed, trying to arrest him. He says, am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you did not arrest me. Jesus points out that there must be a misunderstanding of who he is if they think that they need weapons in order to capture him. I was in the temple every day, Jesus says, teaching. Why didn't you arrest me then? So what's fascinating to me is that this is the closest thing that we get from Jesus to a protest about his arrest. And and it's not even really a protest, if you read it. He's more just exposing how odd it is for the chief priest to arrest him in this way. For them to send all this firepower to arrest someone who has zero history of violence or violent resistance. Jesus is saying, do you you really need an armed mob to arrest a rabbi, a teacher? He's also pointing out the shadiness of them arresting someone under under the cover of nightfall rather than in plain sight during the day at the temple. He's hinting that they know what they're doing is shady. Otherwise, they wouldn't have gone about it in this way. But, Jesus says, verse 56, this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Again, Jesus says, this is always how it was gonna happen. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. So here we arrive at the moment that Jesus predicted in last week's passage. The moment when all of the disciples scatter. Upon seeing that Jesus has been arrested, the disciples, every single one of them evidently, run for their life. They know that people, or at least the people in this crowd that day, from this point forward will recognize them as the people who are associated with Jesus and his ministry. So likely, fearing for their safety, their freedom, their families, they retreat. As the Old Testament prophet predicted, the shepherd was struck and the sheep scattered. They run as Jesus is hauled off to be crucified. Despite the disciples' best intentions, 
Despite Peter's best efforts in this story, everything goes precisely as Jesus and the scriptures said that it would go. On the evening of Passover, or likely the early morning hours after the evening of Passover, Jesus is arrested by the chief priest who will eventually see to it that he is killed. So, what can we take away from this passage? What is this passage about exactly? Here's my best shot at it. I think this passage shows us a particular kind of misunderstanding about God's kingdom and specifically a misunderstanding of our own role within God's kingdom. One that is embodied vividly by Peter's actions in the story. The the crowd shows up with Judas armed to the teeth with swords and clubs and Peter sees it as his job to fight back to break out his sword, go to battle, defend Jesus, to prevent Jesus from being taken into custody. Sword versus sword, violence versus violence, power versus power. Peter thinks that he has been put there to be Jesus's defender. He thinks his job is to defend Jesus and preserve God's kingdom. And my guess is that in a way, many of us have also felt that that is our responsibility, to defend Jesus. Sure, maybe not literally with a weapon, although this is East Tennessee, so maybe I shouldn't rule that out. Some people here and elsewhere do have that particular misunderstanding about God's kingdom, but maybe we don't feel the need to do it with literal violence. Maybe we just feel the need to defend him with our words. So so moments arise in life where we feel like Jesus or our faith or our belief system is under attack in some way, shape, or form. Maybe it's because of something a coworker or a classmate said about the Christian faith. Maybe it was something you saw on the news or read online that people said disparaging about Christianity. Maybe it was a TikTok theologian or deconstructionist that you came across on social media saying something about the Bible. Maybe it's when people raise questions or objections or antagonism in a life group setting. Maybe it's when your friends make you feel weird for not partying on the weekends. Maybe it's when your coworker or professor finds out that you're a Christian and starts to slowly poke fun at you occasionally for it. Could be a variety of different circumstances. But one way or another, something happens that makes you feel like your belief system, your faith, your values are under attack. In those moments, what is your gut response to that happening? I think there are at least times where we respond by thinking it is our job to defend Jesus. Or at least defend our worldview, our belief system, right? This thing rises up in us where we go, I'm not gonna let people talk about Jesus that way. I'm not going to let them talk about Christianity, about the Bible that way. And so we, we brace to debate or argue or fight with whoever or whatever it is. I'm going to write into this news outlet that published that disparaging story about Christians and I'm going to tell them I'm canceling my subscription. I'm going to hop into this person's comment section online and let them know how offended I and other Christians are about their posts. I'm gonna attend this school board meeting and publicly humiliate the people on it for the decision that they made. 
What all of those postures have in common is that they are attempts to defend Jesus, or at least defend our belief in Jesus. But I think we're assuming a couple different things when we take that posture. One is that God needs and or wants us to defend him and his kingdom. We're assuming that one of our roles as followers of Jesus is to defend, to refute, to debate, and to argue, to win the rap battle, so to speak. To defend all that is good and right. And I will say, there is a balance to be struck here. There there are places in the New Testament that talk about us defending the faith. But mostly, those are passages written to leaders of the church to defend the faith against false teaching and false teachers within the church. They're not really talking about us defending the faith against any person on the news or social media that doesn't like us as Christians. And even then, in those passages, the ones that talk about us defending the faith, they talk about us doing so gently and graciously They talk about doing it without being quarrelsome and without engaging in foolish controversies and arguments. One of the main passages I've heard used to justify this posture of defending Jesus or defending the faith is 1 Peter chapter three. We'll put it up on the screen. It reads like this. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. To which some people say, see, there it is. We're supposed to make a defense for our faith. But you gotta keep reading. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience. So that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So according to that passage, there is a particular way that we are to, quote, give a defense for our faith. And somewhat ironically, it apparently doesn't look much at all like being defensive. It looks like gentleness and respect, in Peter's words. And you know what's really interesting? Peter, who wrote that passage that we just looked at in 1 Peter, is the same Peter who mistakenly defended Jesus that day in the garden. It would seem that he might have learned something over the years about correct and incorrect ways to defend Jesus. Isn't it cool to see sanctification in real time play out in the pages of the Bible? So listen, do not hear what I'm not saying. I think there is wisdom in reading and learning how to talk about your faith as a follower of Jesus in in well-informed and rational and thoughtful sorts of ways. There is value in, in learning how to respond intelligently to objections that people might have to the way of Jesus. All of that is great. And listen, I honestly think most Christians could stand to do more of that. One of my all-time favorite authors and speakers is a guy named Tim Keller. If you know anything about him and his ministry while he was alive, you know that he spent a lot of time reasoning with people about faith in Jesus. Helping them discover that rational, well-educated, thoughtful people can still have compelling reasons to believe in Jesus and follow Jesus. I'm a fan of all of that. But if you ever watched or listened to Tim Keller interact with someone who didn't share his beliefs, 
If you ever watched him debate with someone, you'll notice that it didn't really sound much like a debate at all. It, it sounded like a dialogue. It, it sounded like a compassionate, gracious type of conversation. It, it sounds like Tim really loved those people that he was supposed to be debating with and wanted to communicate with him on their level in language that they could understand. I think Tim Keller knew that if a person can be argued into faith in Jesus, it would only be a matter of time before someone came along and argued them out of it. But he also knew that if he could just gently offer compelling reasons for people to believe, for them to believe what some of them already deep down wanted to believe, if he could do that, it might just create space for the Holy Spirit to do something profound in those moments. I think that's what 1 Peter 3 is saying that we should do as God's people. Always be prepared to give a defense for the reason, for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. There is a difference between reasoning with someone and trying to argue them into submission. There is a difference between appealing to someone and trying to defeat or humiliate them in an argument. I would argue that Jesus invites us to do the first one, not the second one. But with all of that said, we also need to acknowledge at this point in the teaching that a defensive antagonistic posture is not the only misguided way to respond when our faith feels under attack. It's the one that Jesus specifically confronts in Peter in the story, but it's not the only misguided response that there is. Some people instead, when, when Jesus or their faith feels attacked, they go the other direction with it. Instead of fight, they go flight. If people don't like Christianity because of what Christianity teaches about sex, for instance, well, let's just not talk about it. Or better yet, let's change it. If people don't like what the Bible teaches about gender, well, let's just decide that the Bible actually doesn't say anything about it or pretend it's not clear when it actually is. If people don't like what Jesus says about forgiveness or letting go of bitterness and resentment, well, I'm sure there's caveats to that. Like maybe he didn't mean forgive everybody. He just meant like forgive the people you wanna forgive. Let's just say that's not what Jesus really meant. I think there is a tendency in others of us I would say especially my generation and younger, to just bail on clear teachings of the scriptures because we don't want to be looked down on for believing those things. So instead of arguing people into submission, instead of arguing them into believing in Jesus, we just choose to withdraw anything controversial that he has to say from the conversation. We functionally edit Jesus down so that maybe people won't actually take issue with him in the first place. Figuratively speaking, if some of us are Peter, ready to fight to the death to defend Jesus, others of us are the rest of the disciples, cutting and running at the first sign of conflict or difficulty. We just go flight instead of fight. Which brings up the second faulty assumption that Peter seems to make in this story. I think there is part of Peter that assumes that violently defending Jesus 
is the only way to ensure that he doesn't abandon Jesus. He's he's so hyper-focused on what Jesus keeps saying about how he and the other disciples are gonna fail that he ends up swinging the pendulum all the way in the other direction, right? The crowd comes to arrest Jesus and Peter thinks, I'll show them who's not gonna fail Jesus, whatcha, right? Like that's his response. Peter is convinced that if the worst thing possible is failing Jesus, well then that must mean that the best thing is to violently defend him. With one swing of the sword, Peter is convinced that he just proved everybody, including Jesus, wrong about him. But see, I think this shows us something. I think it reveals something that we absolutely must realize about all of this it reveals that often the defensive posture that we take in these moments when our faith feels under attack, the defensive posture that we take is actually not about Jesus at all. It's more about us. It's it's about our pride. It's about our insecurity. It's about our fear, our perceived inadequacy in the, ways, in the eyes of the world. It's, it's about our own weaknesses. I, I think in these types of moments, what we are really defending is not Jesus. We're defending us. Because here's the thing. When somebody attacks the Christian faith in some way, I don't think they're hurting Jesus. Jesus is good. <laughs> They they might very well be grieving Jesus by what they're saying and doing. That's certainly possible, but they aren't harming him. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. The scriptures tell us that one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Jesus is good. He's not wringing his hands in the heaven worried about what people are saying about him down here. What they say is not hurting him. Who is it hurting? hurting us. It hurts us. It makes, it makes us feel insecure. It makes us feel belittled and rejected and dismissed by people. So the reason that we respond in those moments with defensiveness or honestly with abandonment has very little to do with our love for the gospel. It has everything to do with our love for comfort, for approval, for control, for cultural power and with the crazy things that we tend to do when we think those things are in jeopardy. And and maybe there's part of us that feels like if we stand up for Jesus in those moments, or, or just if we protect his reputation from the things that people don't like, there's part of us that feels like if we do that, we can keep people from dismissing him. or or from dismissing us, or or that bare minimum, we can keep other people we know from falling away from the faith. If we argue with the people raising objections and doubts to the way of Jesus, well, well, then we can prevent them from leading other people astray with what they're saying. If, If we remove some of the difficult things that Jesus says, maybe we can keep people interested in him and keep people from writing him off. And to that, I say, maybe. But tell me this, in our story, in Matthew 26, does Peter defending Jesus keep Jesus from being arrested? Nope. Does Peter defending Jesus keep the other disciples from falling away from Jesus? No. Does Peter's defense even keep Peter from falling away from Jesus? 
No. <laughs> does, does Peter's defense keep him and the other disciples from eventually suffering and dying for the sake of the gospel? Does it keep people from hating and dismissing them as Jesus' disciples? No and no. So hear me out here. Is it possible that we could be overestimating what our defending Jesus can accomplish? Is it possible that we think we're capable of controlling things that we actually can't control? Is it possible that we think we can prevent things that we actually can't prevent? I think all of that is very possible, probable even. <laughs> and I've got to wonder if that's some of what Jesus is trying to teach Peter in this passage, in this interaction. He says to Peter, Peter, how else would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? He says to the armed crowd who has come to capture him, this has all taken place so that the prophets might be fulfilled. All of this is exactly how all of this was supposed to play out. And because this is how it was supposed to go down, there is truly nothing that Peter or anyone else can do to stop it. But that all leaves us with the question, at least for many of us, okay, then who should defend Jesus? If, if it's not Peter, if it's not us, if we're not the ones who are gonna do it, who's gonna do the defending? Like, like, surely the answer is not just for the gospel message to look weak to the watching world. That can't be what God intended, right? If that's what you're wondering, I've got good news and bad news for you. Bad news first, yeah, I'm a bad news first kind of guy. Only goes up from there, right? Here's the bad news. At least from the perspective of someone who wants the gospel message to look strong to the world at large. The bad news is that there is truly no way to make the message of a crucified Messiah look strong by the standards of this world. That's actually precisely what Paul gets into in 1 Corinthians chapter one. There he puts it this way, we'll put it up on the screen. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Utter foolishness, Paul says. Silliness, weakness, it's bizarre to them. But, he goes on, in other words, here's the good news. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He goes on a little bit later in verse 27 of that same chapter. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before God. The bad news is that if you follow Jesus, impressiveness in the world's eyes is somewhat off the table for you. But the good news is that in God's kingdom, it's never been about impressiveness. It's never been about being noble, being culturally savvy, and being revered by your peers. It's never been about power by the world's definitions, physical, mental, philosophical, or otherwise. It's never been about that. 
It's never been about impressive debate skills and owning people in arguments on social media. It's never been about defending Jesus in the eyes of the world and making him appear impressive or unoffensive to them. It's always been about what Paul calls weakness. But as we've said often these past few weeks, when we are weak, he is strong. Our goal as followers of Jesus is not to win, at least not in any of the traditional or typical ways. Jesus wins in the end, and we get to reign forever with him, which means we can be okay with losing now. So let's stop pursuing strength the world's way and start accepting strength the Jesus way, which is through weakness, through foolishness, in Paul's words, through Christ and him crucified. As Paul continues in, second, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, quote, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith may not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. God help us if we think we possess something better than God's power, than the Spirit's power. Look right at me as I say this. Please, we are not God's defenders. He is our defender. And that's such better news than the other way around because we're not good at it. When we are weak, he is strong. So this morning, those of us that know and follow Jesus are invited to go to the tables around this room and celebrate the king who conquers through his death. The God who demonstrates his power by laying it all down. The Jesus who wins by first losing. And as we take the bread and the cup into our bodies, which represent the broken body and the spilled blood of Jesus, Christ and him crucified, right? As we do that, we ask him to instill that same mindset in us as his people by his spirit's power. Let me pray.